Section 38 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate McKenzie. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 33. Charles IX and the Religious Wars, 1560-1574. Part 4. It is the failing of a hypocritical and lying policy, however able, that if it do not succeed promptly, a moment arrives when it becomes transparent and lets in daylight. Even Conde could not delude himself any longer. The preparations were for war against the reformers. He quitted the court to take his stand again with his own party, Coligny, Dandelot, Le Rochefoucauld, Lanoux, and all the accredited leaders amongst the Protestants, whom his behaviour, too full of confidence or of complaisance towards the court, had shocked or disquieted, went and joined him. In September 1567, the Second Religious War broke out. It was short and not decisive for either party. At the outset of the campaign, success was with the Protestants. Forty towns, Orléans, Montereau, Lagny, Montauban, Castres, Montpellier, Ouse, etc., opened their gates to them or fell into their hands. They were within an ace of surprising the king at Monceux, and he never forgot, says Montluc, that the Protestants had made him do the stretch from Meaux to Paris at something more than a walk. It was around Paris that Conde concentrated all the efforts of the campaign. He had posted himself at Saint-Denis with a small army of 4,000 foot and 2,000 horse. The constable de Montmorency commanded the royal army, having a strength of 16,000 foot and 3,000 horse. Attempts were made to open negotiations, but the constable broke them off brusquely, roaring out that the king would never tolerate two religions. On the 10th of November 1567, the battle began at Saint-Denis and was fought with alternations of partial success and reverse, which spread joy and sadness through the two hosts in turn, but, in resisting a charge of cavalry, led to victory by Conde, the constable fell with and under his horse. A Scot called out to him to surrender. For sole response, the aged warrior, abandoned by his men, but not by his manhood, says Daubigny, smashed the Scot's jaw with the pommel of his broken sword, and at the same moment he fell, mortally wounded by a shot through the body. His death left the victory uncertain, and the royal army disorganised. The campaign lasted still four months, thanks to the energetic perseverance of Coligny and the inexhaustible spirits of Conde, both of whom excelled in the art of keeping up the courage of their men. "'Where are you taking us now?' asked an ill-tempered officer one day. "'To meet our German allies,' said Conde. "'And suppose we don't find them? "'Then we will breathe on our fingers, for it is mighty cold.' They did at last, at Pont-à-Mousson, meet the German reinforcements, which were being brought up by Prince John Casimir, son of the Elector Palatine, and which made Conde's army strong enough for him to continue the war in earnest.' But these newcomers declared that they would not march any farther unless they were paid the hundred thousand crowns due to them. Conde had but two thousand. 
Thereupon, says Lanou, was there nothing for it but to make a virtue of necessity, and he, as well as the admiral, employed all their art, influence, and eloquence to persuade every man to divest himself of such means as he possessed for to furnish this contribution which was so necessary. They themselves were the first to set an example, giving up their own silver plate. Half from love and half from fear, this liberality was so general that, down to the very soldier's varlets, every one gave, so that at last it was considered a disgrace to have contributed little. When the whole was collected, it was found to amount in what was coined as well as in plate and gold chains to more than eighty thousand livres, which came in so timely that without it there would have been a difficulty in satisfying the raters. Was it not a thing worthy of astonishment to see an army itself unpaid, despoiling itself of the little means it had of relieving its own necessities and sparing that little for the accommodation of others who, peradventure, scarcely gave them a thank you for it. So much generosity and devotion, amongst the humblest as well as the most exalted ranks of the army, deserved not to be useless, but it turned out quite differently. Conde and Coligny led back to Paris their new army, which, it is said, was from eighteen to twenty thousand strong, and seemed to be in a condition either to take Paris itself, or to force the royal army to enter the field, and accept a decisive battle. To bring that about, Conde thought the best thing was to besiege Chartres, the key to the granary of Paris, as it was called, and a big thorn, according to Lanoue, to run into the foot of the Parisians. But Catherine de' Medici had quietly entered once more into negotiations with some of the Protestant chiefs, even with Conde himself. Charles the Ninth published an edict in which he distinguished between heretics and rebels, and assured of his protection all Huguenots who should lay down arms. Chartres seemed to be on the point of capitulating, when news came that peace had just been signed at Longjumeau on the 23rd of March. The king put again in force the Edict of Amboise of 1563, suppressing all the restrictions which had been tacked on to it successively. The Prince of Conde and his adherents were reinstated in all their possessions, offices, and honours. And Conde was held and reputed good relative, faithful subject, and servant of the king. The reformers had to disband, restore the new places they had occupied, and send away their German allies, to whom the king undertook to advance the hundred thousand gold crowns which were due to them. He further promised, by a secret article, that he too would, at a later date, dismiss his foreign troops and a portion of the French. This news caused very various impressions amongst the Protestant camp and people. The majority of the men of family engaged in the war, who most frequently had to bear the expense of it, desired peace. The personal advantages accruing to Conde himself made it very acceptable to him, but the ardent reformers, with Coligny at their head, complained bitterly of others being lured away by fine words and exceptional favours, and not prosecuting the war when, to maintain it, there was so good an army and the chances were so favourable. A serious dispute took place between the Pacific negotiators and the malcontents. 
Chancellor de l'Hôpital wrote, in favour of peace, a discourse on the Pacific settlement of the troubles of the year 1567, containing the necessary causes and reasons of the treaty, together with the means of reconciling the two parties to one another, and keeping them in perpetual concord, composed by a high personage, true subject, and faithful servant of the French crown. But, if the Chancellor's reasons were sound, the hopes he hung upon them were extravagant, the parties were at that pitch of passion at which reasoning is in vain against impressions and promises are powerless against suspicions concluded through the vehemence of the desire to get home again as lanoue says the peace of longjumeau was none the less known as the little peace the patched up peace the lame and rickety peace and neither they who wished for it nor they who spurned it prophesied its long continuance scarcely six months having elapsed in august fifteen sixty eight the third religious war broke out the written guarantees given in the treaty of longjumeau for security and liberty on behalf of the protestants were misinterpreted or violated massacres and murders of protestants became more numerous and were committed with more impunity than ever in 1568 and 1569, at Amiens, at Auxerre, at Orléans, at Rouen, at Bourges, at Troyes, and at Bois, Protestants, at one time to the number of 140 or 120 or 53 or 40, and at another singly, with just their wives and children, were massacred, burned, and hunted by the excited populace, without any intervention on the part of the magistrates to protect them or to punish their murderers the contemporary protestant chroniclers set down at ten thousand the number of victims who perished in the course of these six months which were called a time of peace we may with de Vaux, believe this estimate to be exaggerated but without doubt the peace of longjumeau was a lie even before the war began again during this interval conde was living in burgundy at Noyer a little fortress he possessed through his wife, Frances of Orléans, and Coligny was living not far from Noyer at Tanley, which belonged to his brother, Dandelot. They soon discovered, both of them, not only what their party had to suffer, but what measures were in preparation against themselves. Agents went and sounded the depth of the moats of Noyers so as to report upon the means of taking the place. The Queen Mother had orders given to Gaspard de Tavannes, to surround the Prince of Conde at Neue. "'The Queen is counselled by passion rather than by reason,' answered the old warrior. "'I am not the sort of man to succeed in this ill-planned enterprise of distaff and pen. If Her Majesty will be pleased to declare open war, I will show how I understand my duty.' Shocked at the dishonourable commands given him, Tavannes resolved to indirectly raise Conde's apprehension in order to get him out of Burgundy, of which he, Tavannes, held the governorship, and he sent close past the walls of Noyes bearers of letters containing these words. The stag is in the toils, the hunt is ready. Conde had the bearers arrested, understood the warning, and communicated it to Coligny, who went and joined him at Noyer, and they decided, both of them, upon quitting Burgundy without delay, to go and seek over the Loire at La Rochelle, which they knew to be devoted to their cause, a sure asylum and a place suitable for their purposes as a centre of warlike operations. 
they set out together on the 24th of August, 1568. Con took with him his wife and his four children, two of tender age. Coligny followed him in deep mourning. He had just lost his wife, Charlotte de Laval, that worthy mate of his who, six years previously, in a grievous crisis for his soul as well as his cause, had given him such energetic counsels. She had left him one young daughter and three little children, the two youngest still in the nurse's arms. His sister-in-law, Anne d'Orsan, wife of his brother Dandelot, was also there with a child of two years, whilst her husband was scouring Anjou and Brittany to rally the friends of his cause and his house. A hundred and fifty men, soldiers and faithful servants, escorted these three noble and pious families who were leaving their castles to go and seek liberties and perils in a new war. When they arrived at the bank of the Loire, they found all points in the neighbourhood guarded. The river was low, and a boatman pointed out to them, near Sancerre, a possible ford. Conde went over first, with one of his children in his arms. They all went over singing the psalm, when Israel went out of Egypt, and on the 16th of September, 1568, Conde entered La Rochelle. I fled as far as I could, he wrote the next day, but when I got here, I found the sea, and inasmuch as I don't know how to swim, I was constrained to turn my head round and gain the land, not with feet, but with hands. He assembled the burgesses of La Rochelle, and laid before them the pitiable condition of the kingdom, the wicked designs of people who were their enemies as well as his own. He called upon them to come and help. He promised to be aidful to them in all their affairs, and, as a pledge of my good faith, said he, I will leave you my wife and children, the dearest and most precious jewels I have in this world. The mayor of La Rochelle, Laise, responded by offering him lives and property in the name of all the citizens, who confirmed this offer with an outburst of popular enthusiasm. The Protestant nobles of Saint-Tongue and Poitou flocked in. A royal ally was announced. The Queen of Navarre, Jeanne d'Albret, was bringing her son Henry, fifteen years of age, whom she was training up to be Henry the Fourth. Conde went to meet them, and, on the 28th of September, 1568, all this flower of French Protestantism was assembled at La Rochelle, ready and resolved to commence the Third Religious War. It was the longest and most serious of the four wars of this kind which so profoundly agitated France in the reign of Charles the Ninth. This one lasted from the 24th of August, 1568, to the 8th of August, 1570, between the departure of Conde and Coligny for La Rochelle and the Treaty of Peace at Saint-Germain-en-Laye, a hollow peace like the rest, and only two years before the St. Bartholomew. On starting from Noyer with Coligny, Conde had addressed to the king, on the 23rd of August, a letter and a request, wherein, after having set forth the grievances of the reformers, he attributed all the mischief to the cardinal of Lorraine, and declared that the Protestant nobles felt themselves constrained, for the safety of the realm, to take up arms against that infamous priest, that tiger of France, and against his accomplices. He bitterly reproached the Guise, with treating as mere policists, that is, men who sacrificed religion to temporal interests, the Catholics inclined to make concessions to the reformers, especially the Chancellor de l'Hôpital and the sons of the late Constable de Montmorency. The Guise, indeed, and their friends did not conceal their distrust of l'Hôpital, 
any more than he concealed his opposition to their deeds and their designs. Whilst the peace of Longjumeau was still in force, Charles the Ninth issued a decree interdicting all reformers from the chairs of the university and the officers of the judicature. L'Hôpital refused to seal it. "'God save us from the Chancellor's mass!' was the remark at court. L'Hôpital, convinced that he would not succeed in preserving France from a fresh civil war, made up his mind to withdraw and go and live for some time at his estate of Vigné, a little hamlet in the commune of Gironville, near Tempes, saying it was. The queen-mother eagerly took advantage of his withdrawal to demand of him the seals, of which, she said, she might have need daily. L'Hôpital gave them up at once, at the same time retaining his title of Chancellor and letting the Queen know that he would take pains to recover his strength in order to return to his post if and when it should be the King's and the Queen's pleasure. From his rural home he wrote to his friends, I am not downhearted because the violence of the wicked has snatched from me the seals of the kingdom. I have not done as sluggards and cowards do, who hide themselves at the first show of danger and obey the first impulses of fear. As long as I was strong enough, I held my own. Deprived of all support, even that of the king and the queen, who dared no longer defend me, I retired, deploring the unhappy condition of France. Now I have other cares. I return to my interrupted studies and to my children, the props of my old age and my sweetest delight. I cultivate my fields. The estate of Vignet seems to me a little kingdom, if any man may consider himself master of anything here below. I will tell you more. This retreat which satisfies my heart also flatters my vanity. I like to imagine myself in the wake of those famous exiles of Athens or Rome, whom their virtues rendered formidable to their fellow citizens. Not that I dare compare myself with those great men, but I say to myself that our fortunes are similar. I live in the midst of a numerous family whom I love. I have books. I read, write, and meditate. I take pleasure in the games of my children. The most frivolous occupations interest me. In fine, all my time is filled up, and nothing would be wanting to my happiness if it were not for the awful apparition hard by which sometimes comes, bringing trouble and desolation to my heart. This apparition hard by was war, everywhere present or imminent in the centre and southwest of France, accompanied by all those passions of personal hatred and vengeance which are characteristic of religious wars, and which add so much of the moral sufferings to the physical calamities of life. L'Hôpital, when sending the seals to the Queen Mother, who demanded them of him, considered it his bounden duty to give her without any mincing, and the king whom she governed, a piece of patriotic advice. At my departure, he says in his will and testament, I prayed of the king and queen this thing, that, as they had determined to break the peace, and proceed by war against those with whom they had previously made peace, and, as they were driving me from the court, because they had heard it said that I was opposed to, and ill-content with their enterprise, I prayed them, I say, that if they did not acquiesce in my counsel, they would, at the very least, some time after they had glutted and satiated their hearts and their thirst with the blood of their subjects, embrace the first opportunity that offered itself for making peace, before that things were reduced to utter ruin. For, whatever there might be at the bottom of this war, 
it could not but be very pernicious to the king and the kingdom. During the two years that it lasted, from August 1568 to August 1570, the third religious war under Charles IX entailed two important battles and many deadly faction fights which spread and inflamed to the highest pitch the passions of the two parties. On the 13th of March 1569, the two armies, both about 20,000 strong, and appearing both of them anxious to come to blows, met near Jarnac on the banks of the Charente. The royal army had for its chief Catherine de Medici's third son, Henry, Duke of Anjou, advised by the veteran warrior Gaspard de Tavannes, and supported by the young Duke Henry of Guise, who had his father to avenge and his own spurs to win. End of section 38